Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Uh, we're going to finish up the copper ring, Washington Spies. And uh, so let us get started. So we're going to talk tonight, starting the episode with Clinton's intelligence services. While all this was going on, the British had their own agents in play. They didn't have anything as sophisticated as the copper ring. And for a while, General Clinton did not have a head of intelligence, a man equivalent to Talmadge who could have saved him from the day-to-day -day work and kept things running smoothly. None of the commanders appreciated the importance of timeless and multiple sources in the way that Washington did. Their efforts were far more focused on military scouts who were still important to the Americans. But those limitations Washington had come to appreciate. Part of the problem was the British were bogged down in a European view of intelligence. High-level espionage in Europe consisted of intercepting and decoding letters between diplomats and courtiers, a technique of little relevance in a continent without courts on a regular post service. Military maneuvers in Europe took place within more confined spaces and well-known routes than in America. So scouting was more limited in its aims and potential than in the New World. While not consciously fighting a European war, Clinton was weighted down by the habits of one. And while both he and Washington had to develop a new way of working, mainly from scratch, the American proved more adept at adjusting. But the British did manage to establish agents in American territory, agents who had helped them during the Rochambeau plot. Two loyalist officers ran private intelligence networks based out of New York, General Cortland Skinner and Colonel Beverly Robinson. Scouts, prisoners, deserters, and refugees provided them with a messy mix of information, which they compiled into reports and sent to Clinton. Jumbles, contradictory, and seldom timely, these reports were of limited use at best. But the most valuable agent was the one who would become most notorious in the annals of history was General Benedict Arnold. Major John Andre was the son of a Swiss father and a French mother. After growing up in Geneva, he moved to London to work for his father's mercantile company. After inheriting his father's wealth at 19, he bought a lieutenant's commission in the British infantry and went to fight in North America in 1775. Captured by the Americans during the siege, Andre was exchanged after the Battle of New York. He joined General Howe's headquarters staff as a translator for the Hessians, German soldiers who made up a significant and colorful minority of British troops. After Howe's departure, he became part of Clinton's staff and one of his closest confidants. In May of 1779, Clinton was overwhelmed with work. He made Andre his intelligence specialist delegating oversight of this part of the war effort to his trusted friend and aide. Andre began sifting out intelligence reports from the rest of the general's correspondence and collecting them in chronological order. It might seem like a basic step, but it drew important information out of the mass of day-to-day -day business, making it accessible in one place. Abandoned due to disinterest in August, the system was picked up again in July of 1780. In the meantime, Andre picked up a far more valuable source of information 
than anyone could have ever have dreamt. Benedict Arnold has started out as a dedicated and courageous warrior for the Patriot cause. He fought bravely in the Battle of Ticonderoga and stepped and stopped General Burgoyne escaping the Americans at the Battle of, of uh, Bemis Heights. But he did not feel he was suitably appreciated or rewarded for his efforts. Overlooked for promotion, he began to wallow in reticent against his peers and superiors. Placed in charge of Philadelphia while he recovered from a leg wound, Arnold became engaged to Peggy Shippen, the daughter of a local loyalist. He was already drifting toward Tory politics, uncomfortable at his nation's alliance with France, the long-standing enemy of Britain and her colonies, and the engagement helped to solidify his position. His enemies sought to have him court-martialed for small misdemeanors, and though Washington saved him from many serious consequences, he still rebuked Arnold for his failings. To soothe Arnold's damaged pride, Washington put him in charge of West Point, a position he took up in August of 1780. But by then it was already too late. Arnold's heart had turned against the rebel cause. In May of 1779, Arnold met with Joseph Stansbury, a Philadelphia merchant. He asked Stansbury to act as his emissary, <clears throat> going to the British in New York and offering them Arnold's services as an agent. In New York, Stansbury's contacts in the Loyalist community introduced him to Andre, the newly made head of Clinton's intelligence services. Andre brought word of this to the general, who gave him permission to pursue the matter with Arnold. So began an extended covert correspondence between Andre and Arnold. Like the Culpering, they went through several iterations of encryption as they looked for a secure way to transmit dangerous messages. People and places were given dramatic code names from the Bible. Numerical codes were created through references to, to the placement of words in specific books. First, a set of legal commentaries, then a dictionary, Arnold provided valuable information on the strength and location of the Patriot forces, as well as their supply depots. At the same time, he began negotiating the rewards for his betrayal of the American cause. He had felt underappreciated and under-rewarded by his current masters. He was determined that this new one should not treat him in the same way as the old. The first few months were a period of careful negotiations and testing for both sides. Andre was trying to work out whether Arnold was what he appeared to be and how much could be gained from the senior position, not just in information, but in potential disruption and even seizure of patriot positions. Arnold was trying to work out how much he could get out of the British, his motives being far more mercenary than those of the Culper agents. August of 1780 was a turning point. Not only did Arnold take control of the garrison at West Point, a highly valuable position, but he and Andre agreed on the terms of the defection. If, as part of the defection, he managed to hand over West Point and its garrison to the British, then he would be rewarded 20,000 pounds. If that failed, but he still managed to defect, then he would receive 10,000 pounds. 
either was a considerable sum. Washington had almost given up on the copper ring for sums of only a hundred pounds, but worth it for the British, given when highs the stakes were quite high. In September, Andre snuck into Patriot territory to meet with Arnold and seal the deal. Traveling up the Hudson River with one of his local agents, Beverly Robinson, Andre was one at first chased off by a British patrol boat. On the 21st of September, Andre met with Josiah Smith, an intermediary for General Arnold, and through him was finally brought to Arnold. They talked through most of the night, Arnold providing information about West Point and British forces. With daylight approaching, Andre decided to stay at Smith's house. The next day, the ship that brought Andre up the Hudson was shelled by American artillery, forcing it to retreat downriver. Andre was forced to set out overland, disguised as a civilian, carrying with him maps and sketches of local defenses, as well as a travel pass provided by Arnold. On the 23rd, Andre was ambushed by three patriots, interested in as much mugging him as in furthering the political cause. They were negotiating how much he would have to pay them to secure his release, when, in removing his expensive boots, they found the incriminating documents that he was carrying. Deciding that they might as well hand him in, they took him to Colonel Jameson, the commander of North Castle, who let them keep Andre's belongings in return for surrendering the prisoner. Colonel Jameson was put in an awkward position. Here was a man traveling under the name of James Anderson, trying to leave American territory with sensitive documents and a pass provided by General Arnold. Only days earlier, he had received instructions from Arnold to let James Anderson travel into their territory from New York, and now he was going the other way with suspicious papers, and with Arnold's permission. Jameson was wary of what Arnold, his commanding officer, was up to, but aware he, he risked in trouble for insubordination if he went behind Arnold's back. Hedging his bets, he sent the papers directly to Washington and sent Andre along with a report of the events to Arnold. Late that evening, Talmadge arrived at Jameson's headquarters and heard the story. He had also received a letter from Arnold asking him to give James Anderson safe passage. Now a seasoned veteran in the art of covert operations, he jumped to the right conclusion, unable to persuade Jameson to help him arrest Arnold, he managed to have Andre fetched back through Jameson still, though Jameson still insisted on sending the letter explaining the situation to Arnold. In the light of the next day, Andre's captors noticed the powder in his hair, as well as his military way of carrying himself. It was increasingly evident this was no mere civilian. On learning this and that, of the letters that had been sent to Washington, Andre gave up. He wrote a letter to Washington giving his actual name and admitting he was a British officer. Meanwhile, Arnold had been awaiting Washington's arrival to inspect West Point. He had hoped to kidnap the Supreme Commander of the American forces and take him with him to the British, a spectacular coup. But while he was waiting, the letter from Jameson arrived. Realizing the game was up, 
Arnold fled to the British. The fallout. The Americans rushed too late to arrest Arnold. They had reinforced the defenses at West Point in case of an impending British attack. They had been saved from a potentially massive disaster and were not going to take any risk with what they know, now know. Talmadge rode, rode with Andre to Tappan, well away from any prospect of a British rescue mission. The two men got along well. Talmadge was sad to realize and to reveal that Andre's fate would likely be the same as that of Talmadge's old friend, Nathan Hale. Execution for espionage. The situation was more complex than it had been for Hale. Andre was an adjunct general in the British Army, and Clinton wrote to intercede on this his behalf. Washington was willing to trade him for Arnold. But Clinton, though upset at losing his friend, could not make that trade if ever he wanted to see another defection. On Washington's side, the American public had to be appeased with the blood of one of the major players in the drama. Talmadge continued to provide his opposite number with support throughout the process and was one of the confirmed, one who confirmed him that he would hang as a spy rather than, as Andre had asked, being shot as an officer. Andre faced the gallows as Hale had done, with courage and dignity. His final words, bear me witness that I may meet my fate like a brave man. The British had lost their head of intelligence in a botched operation, but Arnold's defection was still a significant military coup for them, and one that became an eye-opener in the intelligence work. Arnold brought with him a letter from Talmadge, sent not long before the Major discovered Arnold's betrayal. While not admitting to the existence of a spy ring, it referred to information coming out of New York, information which Talmadge had gained through the Culper Ring. The British started putting the pieces together. Talmadge was based in southern Connecticut, territory full of smugglers running in and out of Long Island. The previous year, Colonel Simcoe had heard that there was a spy in Setauket. Now information was being fed to the enemy out of New York. These elements were clearly connected. All the British had to do was capture one link in the chain, the smuggler, the New Yorker, the Setauket man, even Talmadge himself, and they could dig out of the agents in their midst. Before defecting, Arnold had done his best to find out about American spies on the British side. That so many survived his betrayal is a tribute to the discretion of men like Talmadge who gave their agents code names and went to great lengths not to discuss them unless absolutely necessary. Still, Arnold was determined to play his part in bringing down the American spies. And with Clinton's permission, he began rounding up suspects in New York. Valuable agents were endangered, and the coppering went quiet while they waited for the trouble to blow over. When they con contacted Talmadge again, it was on cautious terms, Woodhall was calling to return to work, but Townsend was not, for now at least, and he ended efforts to find a shorter message, uh, message route, preferring to trust to tried and tested men. As Washington kept pushing him to use a shorter route, Townsend became increasingly uncomfortable. 
the breaking point for Townsend came when Arnold, in his attempts to round up American spies, unwittingly arrested a member of the extended Culper network. Hercules Mulligan had been working as a spy since before the ring was founded, a friend of Alexander Hamilton's. He shared Hamilton and Townsend's merchant background. He was recruited by Hamilton to provide information from inside New York. Well-connected in the city, he used his social and business contacts, as well as first-hand observations, to gather reports on British activities. Just as Townsend did, using his slave Cato as a courier, he transmitted these reports to Hamilton and Washington on the mainland. He also fed into the reports of Townsend, who he knew personally thanks to moving in the same social and business circles. Mulligan's arrest was not triggered by any knowledge on the British part about the spy activities. It was known that he had he had learned toward the Patriots or leaned toward the Patriots politically at the start of the war. And so he became just one more target as Arnold went fishing for spies. Without any evidence against him, he was soon released. This arrest and release had two effects on the Culper Ring. In the long term, it made it too dangerous for Cato to make his voyages across the water to deliver reports to the Americans. And so Mulligan instead channeled his information through Townsend. In the short term, it led Townsend to stop making reports for a while, and he was too afraid that Arnold was stretching them for that. Unless he was very careful, he may be arrested next. Hunting for the traitor. For Washington, one of the most galling things about Arnold's betrayal was that the general had gotten away with it. And so, on the 14th of October, he gave Major Henry Lee the task of recruiting men to kidnap Arnold. He was determined Arnold should be brought back alive. It wasn't just a matter of vengeance. He wanted to make a public example of him. Lee found two men, Sergeant John Campy and an anonymous contact in Newark, New Jersey. Campy, who would play the leading part in the operation, was equipped with a small amount of money and the names of two contacts in New York. To get into the city, he was ordered by Lee to fake a desertion and defection to the enemy. Nobody could know the truth about what he was doing, not even his comrades in Lee's unit. The mission almost ended in disaster on the very first night. Spotted by a patrol as he rode out of his fake desertion, Champy galloped away. The patrol reported to Lee, who pretended ignorance and did his best to delay. But his men were effective and quickly recognized that one of their own was missing. Lee had to send out a party to pursue Champy. Even the least effective of Lee's officers was good at his job. They tracked Campy down, and a chase ensued. They, ra- they reached the Hudson River with his pursuers only a few hundred yards behind him, and he was rescued by a British boat whose crew fended off the American troops with gunfire. Following this dramatic escape, Campy was brought to General Clinton in New York. They talked for an hour, particularly about American morale and the likelihood of more defectors. Clinton recommended that Champy join a regiment of defectors and Tories being raised by Arnold. It was a perfect opportunity. Champy quickly impressed Arnold, who made him a recruiting sergeant. 
He observed Arnold's routine and came up with a scheme to seize the general as he went on a regular midnight stroll around his garden. Though his New York contacts, Campy reached out to the volunteer in Newark, who contracted Lee and arranged for him and a group of, of dragoons to be sent with a boat at a discreet wharf on a set night prepared to accept the captive. But on the very day of the plan, Arnold was moved to a new quarters as Clinton prepared to send him and his new unit into action. The plan fell apart. Campy was shipped out to fight for the British, along with the rest of Arnold's American Legion. Lee and his men awaited on the river all night to no avail. Months later, a bedraggled champion arrived at Lee's camp, having deserted the British. Lee told the regiment the truth about his mission. Campy was re- rewarded and discharged from the army. Arnold remained none the wiser about the danger he had been in. The Long Island Raiders While Townsend was unwilling to send reports out of New York, Talmadge used to rest of the coppering to other ends. By gathering information on activities on Long Island, he planned attacks against British troops and Loyalist privateers based there. Dealing with the privateers would be particularly useful, as they were one of the causes of delays in carrying reports across the Sound. As well as disrupting enemy military activities, this could speed up the Copper Ring's reports. Throughout the war, a low-intensity conflict had been carried out in the Sound. Privateer crews from both sides had launched rage and kidnapping, smuggled supplies, and attacked each other. Named after the light, maneuverable vessels, most of them sailed in. It was known as the Whaleboat War. Brewster had long played a part in the war. While on the opposite side, Colonel Simcoe reported with the Loyalist Raiders. The activities of both sides became a menace to the innocent inhabitants of Long Island. The privateers, given authority to raid those supporting the enemy military, went from taking the broadcast interpretation of their orders to outright attacking civilians as patriotic spirit gave way to naked profiteering. Long Islanders lived in terror of their their raids, which along with British efforts to track down patriot perpetrators, disrupted the work of the Culper Ring. Even Brewster, who had himself seen a whaleboat privateer, complained of the pain and damage inflicted by the raiders. Washington leaned on patriot governors to cancel the privateering licenses on the patriot side, but this had limited effect and did nothing to tackle the loyalist raiders. Brewster made his own ad hoc effort, attacking enemy privateers by taking some of them captive, but he and his crew could only have a limited effect on a much larger problem. It was Talmadge who finally took effective action again, thanks to his agents. He knew that Tory privateers lived in a camp outside Fort Franklin. Under the protection of the fort's garrison, in September of 1779, he and 130 of his dragoons left their horses behind and took passage in a flotilla of whaleboats led by Brewster. Under cover of darkness, they surprised the privateer camp, destroyed the boats and huts, and took several prisoners and escaped without loss. The following August, Talmadge, Brewster, and Woodhall plotted a raid against Fort Franklin. 
inspired in part by a spy planted there by General Parsons. Woodhall provided a sketch of the fort to prepare the troops with, but Talmadge smelled a rat and called off the attack. He learned later that, as he had suspected, Parsons' spy was a double agent who had been leading them into this trap. Woodhall repeatedly fed Talmadge information about British and Loyalist troops in the area, encouraging the Major to attack them. In November of 1780, he provided the information that led to something more ambitious. The British were accumulating hundreds of tons of supplies, mainly hay, at Koran, eight miles from Setauket. Eight miles further on, they were building the fortification on the south shore of Long Island, named Fort St. George. Talmadge saw an opportunity to deprive the British of supplies and prevent them from creating another coastal safe haven for privateers. At his request, Washington provided permission and a hundred dragoons for him to launch another raid. Once again, accompanied by Brewster, Talmadge and his dragoons crossed the Sound in whaleboats, and then they lay in hiding, waiting for the weather to improve. At dawn on the 23rd of November, they stormed Fort St. George, destroyed its stores and defense works, and took 50 prisoners. A dozen men rode cap- captured horses to Coram, where they chased off the guards and set fire to the enormous stock of hay. By mid-afternoon, they were back at their boats, and by and one, one in the morning, they were all safely back on the Connecticut shore. One of the raiders was severely wounded, but none were killed. The mission was considered such a success that Talmadge received the thanks not only of Washington, but also of Congress. Heroin, the Dying Days Following Andre's death, Major Oliver DeLancey took charge of the British counterintelligence work. He and his aides ran a more professional and impersonal operation than their predecessors in opposite numbers. With standardized code books and all their agents reporting to them as a group rather than being managed by a single individual, but no amount of procedures could balance the lack of proper experience and Del Lancey was about to be taken in by the lies of William Heron. Heron knew, and he was well respected by General Samuel Holden Parsons, a patriotic commander. Following Arnold's defection, Heron released the British and would pay handsomely for information about potential defectors high in the American ranks. So he went to, to Delancey, shared information, gleamed from General Parsons, and suggested the general might be persuaded to defect. Delancey began employing him as an agent. Back in Connecticut, Heron realized he could play both sides against each other. He gave Parsons information about the defenses of New York, becoming his agent. Heron moved back and forth between the two sides, giving each enough information, some true and some invented, to keep them paying him. This also allowed him to carry out in, in, in illegal legal illegal and profitable trade across the lines of both sides with the, that were letting him through. Despite the vagueness of much of Her- Heron's information, he convinced Delancey that Parsons was ripe for defection. In return for his fictional accounts of Parsons' plans for defection, Delancey gave Heron hundreds of pounds for Parsons, which Heron promptly pocketed. Heron kept his scheme up until March of 1782. By then, 
realism overcome Delancey's optimism, and he realized Parsons was not going to defect. He lost interest in Heron, who was happy to move on, making him a substantial profit. Crucially, one of the pieces of information Heron gave to Delancey during their relationship concerned the copper ring. He told Delancey that Brewster was carrying messages between Washington and his agents on Long Island, taking them through Setauket, and that Brewster was sheltered by a certain woman. Now the British knew the identity of one of the links of the copper chain, and that he worked through Setauket was the trap finally going to close. Copper closes shop. On January 1781, Woodhall met with Townsend in New York. He returned with good news. With the initial storm stirred by Arnold having died down, Townsend was willing to return to spying. The ring seemed to be back in business. Talmadge's pleasure at this turn of events was deflated within months. No sooner than the ring got back into action than it hit problems around the two themes that had disrupted its work in the past, money and security. Financially, Washington had only himself to blame if his agents became disconnected. Woodhall kept rigorous track of the ring's expenses, asking for no more than what their, their actual work cost them, but this was not forthcoming. Payments had dried up and up again, and he was owed over uh, 500 pounds, a large sum of money to an ordinary colonial farmer. Townsend, too, had not been reimbursed for costs incurred by his work. Woodhall recognized that it might be difficult for Washington to find the money immediately, given the cost of the war, but he was willing to accept the situation for now, and if he was promised that the debts would be repaid with interest after the war, but he was not going to let the matter die, and Washington had already shown he resented these requests for cash. The other problem stemmed from getting reports out of New York of Austin Rowe and increasingly reluctant to act as a courier. Neither Townsend or Woodhall was willing to make regular journeys. There had always been a risk of inherent to those missions, and now the danger has have increased. The British had set up more checkpoints and recruited informers to report on su- suspicious activity. As they closed on the agents, they knew they were working with Brewster and Talmadge through Setauket. Anyone making repeated journeys through the checkpoints would become conspicuous, having capture unlikely. Washington was persuaded to offer the copper men suitable rewards, but in return, he wanted more regular reports. He got the opposite. Too afraid of capture, Townsend would no longer provide written reports. Woodhall, after some period pointed questioning from the British, was unwilling to return to New York any time soon. From the summer of 1781, the copper ring ceased to exist as an ongoing enterprise. There were occasional letters from Woodhall and even rare verbal reports from Townsend. But Talmadge and Washington had to rely on temporary agents, some of them recruited from among Brewster's roguish crew. A year later, with peace negotiations underway, Washington revived the copper ring to keep an eye on British activities in New York in case they should make a long-lasting attempt to keep control over the city. With the war approaching its end, 
things looked far less dangerous for the spies as they took up their work again. But the reports were less informative and the recipients less attentive. Conclusion The Fates of the Copper Men Brewster continued in patriotic employ throughout the war, often working alongside Talmadge. He used his privateering activities to pursue vendettas against men he had clashed with on the opposite side. He was wounded pursuing them during one of Talmadge's raids, and for his successes received a pension and the praise of Washington himself. He married shortly after the war and had eight children. After working as a blacksmith, coast guard, and farmer, he died in 1827 at the age of 80. The two couriers, Hawkins and Rowe, both ran taverns after the war and were part of the same militia company. Rowe died in 1830 at the age of 81. Hawkins disappeared from the historical record completely. Townsend never received the public offices Washington had promised him. He continued in business supporting an illegitimate boy who may have been the son or may have been his nephew. After a falling out with his brother and business partner, Solomon, he retired to Oyster Bay where he died in 1838 at the age of 84. Shortly after the signing of the Treaty of Paris in September of 1783, Talmadge rode safely into British-occupied New York, the center of the, so many of his, of his schemes. The British were withdrawing, so he went to ensure that his agents were safe during the chaos and recriminations that followed the occupation. He visited his family and friends in Setauket, celebrating the end of the war alongside many of the people who had been his agents. Like Brewster, he was married soon after the war to Mary Floyd, a relative of Colonel Benjamin Floyd. He became wealthy from investments, was elected to Congress as a Federalist, and lived to the age of 81, dying in 1835. He left his spying activities out of the records of his life and only spoke publicly about the work once. When Andre's capture came up in Congress, Losing temper at praise for one of the men who caught the British spy, he railed against the selfish men who had tried to profit from the war. Often at their country's expense and who had caught Andre while trying to rob him. Abraham Woodall, a nervous, the nervous heart of the Culper Ring, was married twice, once in 1781 while still spy, spying, and again in 1824, nearly 24 after his first wife's death. He had three children from his first marriage, and two of whom married Brewster boys. He died at the age of 75 in, in 1826, never having spoken about what he did during the war to anyone. The Culper Ring survived through secrecy, and that habit clung to even them, though their long lives secured them in history. It is only fitting that, generations later, the secrets of their work remain closed and obscured. Their courage remembered, but many of the details, as much of history, is lost to time. <laughs>